Let's open our Bibles this morning to the book of Lamentations. I purposely chose these verses that talk about delicacies of the city of Jerusalem being gone, and we'll liken them to uh, part two, part one we started last week with um, Babylon past, present, and future. But before I get too far, let's go to our text where Paul read for us the first five verses of chapter four, how the gold has become dim, how changed the fine gold. The stones of the sanctuary are scattered. They're at the head of every street. The precious sons of Zion, valuable as fine gold, how they are regarded as clay pots, and the works of the hands of the potter. Even the jackals present their breasts to nurse their young, but the daughters of my people have become cruel, like ostriches in the wilderness. And the tongue of the infant clings to the roof of its mouth for thirst. The young children ask for bread, but no one breaks it for them. And those who ate delicacies are desolate in the streets. And those who brought who were brought up in scarlet embrace ash heaps. The book of Lamentation is really describing a, a funeral of a city. Um, it's a broken-hearted prophet with a broken-hearted message. And as he laments, we just finished the book of Jeremiah. We did all five chapters uh, last Wednesday evening in the book of Lamentations, which is a lament because of the destruction that he had given his whole life as a prophet, true prophet of God, saying that Babylon would come and take the city of Jerusalem and its inhabitants, and that they would live in captivity for the next 70 years under Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, That has been accomplished. Jerusalem is in ruins. And now we have um, these five poems, Actually, they're songs, and they're actually called acrostic psalms or poems. And when I say acrostic, it means it's it's written using the 22 Hebrew letters of their alphabet. If you go back and just look at chapter one, you'll notice that there's 22 verses. And when you read the first verse, it'll start with the Hebrew a letter which would be equivalent to our A, elf, and then the next verse would be B, and then so on and so forth until you go through the complete Hebrew alphabet. You'll notice chapter two has 22 verses. That's also acrostic. Chapter three is interesting because it has 66 verses, but that's 22 plus 22 plus 22. So when you get to verse 23, you're starting over with the A in the Hebrew alphabet. And it would be the same with verse 45. You once again would start over and you would have the uh, alphabet in Hebrew repeated. And it's a lament. And as I was studying for it this week, I I found that they actually put um, a melody to it, a tempo, and the tempo um, w- would definitely be written in a minor key. Any of you musicians here, they'll know that when you hit the E minors and A minors and the B minors, they're sort of the soft and gentle notes um, that evoke, I think, more emotion than some of the major chords. 
And um, he's just laying his heart bare as he's putting out this um, sad song. I asked the first service this morning if, if they knew what's the most famous song ever written. And um, 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 some of you got it right. And it was actually White Christmas. Uh, Bing Crosby, I think, is the one who sang it. But what is the second most popular song ever recorded? And the answer to that is Yesterday by the Beatles. Why? Because everybody can identify with yesterday. All my trials seem so far away. But now I know they're, they're here to stay. Oh, I believe in yesterday. Everybody can identify with the motion of the song of yesterday, and that's why it's the second most popular song ever written. This is a song that will last forever. Jesus said heaven and earth will pass away, but the book of Lamentation, or Lamentations, is uh, a broken-hearted love song for the city of, of what God called the apple of his eye. And it's going to be destroyed by Babylon. Now having said that, I want you to turn back to the book of Jeremiah, uh, to chapter 50 and 51. Even though the Lord said, I'm gonna use Nebuchadnezzar as my instrument to discipline you, Israel, because you've worshiped the Baals, because you've sacrificed your own children on the high places, you need to be taken to the woodshed, and I'm going to do it, and I'm not gonna change my mind. So Jeremiah, here's your message. 70 years in captivity in Babylon. No ifs, ands, and buts about it. Jeremiah, that's your message. You don't back down when you get persecuted. You don't back down when you're put in prison, when you're put in a dungeon. You stand your ground, and you keep that message because that's what's going to happen. Of course, there were the false prophets who said just the opposite. Don't worry about a thing. Um, Jehoiachin is going to come back. He's in captivity right now, and he's going to bring with him some of the temple treasures. Never happened. What did happen is exactly what Jeremiah said would happen, and that is, even though God used Babylon as his instrument, he now, in 50 and 51, pronounces judgment upon Babylon. Let me draw your attention to verse 39 of chapter 50, um, where it tells us that Babylon, it shall be inhabited no more forever, nor shall it be dwelt in from generation to generation. If you look at verse 40, it says, so no one shall reside there, nor the son of man dwell in it. If you look at chapter 51, verse 24, he says, I'm gonna repay Babylon and all the inhabitants of the Chaldeans for all the evil that they had done in Zion in your sight, says the Lord. It's sort of a a mystery to me that God uses Babylon and then turns around and brings judgment on them because of their judgment that they brought against Israel. Now, this morning... Uh, I've entitled this Babylon Has Fallen, Part 2. And what I'd like to do is, for those of you who weren't here last week, and because very seldom do I do a Part 1 and a Part 2, I'm going to briefly go over um, what we did with Babylon past, present, 
and future. It's going to be not as in-depth, it's going to be abbreviated, but I want to dive right in by showing you the fall of Babylon, and you need to turn to Daniel in your Bibles this morning. Daniel chapter 5. And um, without spending too much time here, Babylon fell because of the pride of a king, chapter five, verse one, his name is Belshazzar. Who is this guy? He is the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar. And Daniel's gonna call him out in this chapter by saying, uh, if you look at chapter five, verse 22, but you, but you his son, Belshazzar, now he's speaking of Nebuchadnezzar, you've not humbled your heart, although you knew all this, knew all what? Well, Nebuchadnezzar, took all the credit for the beauty of Babylon. And believe me, it was a wonder. It was one of the, uh, the hanging gardens of Babylon were one of the ancient seven wonders of the world. It had walls 300 feet tall. It had towers 450 feet above, above that. And um, the inner wall was 22 feet thick and the outer wall was 11 feet thick. And then they had Euphrates River running right through the middle of it. And then there was a moat that went all the way around the entire city. And Nebuchadnezzar in chapter um, four is observing his creation. He says, is this not Babylon that I have built for my glory and my splendor? And the words were no sooner out of his mouth than the Lord smote him and he was driven into the wilderness. It says for seven seasons, and that could be seven years, or it could be seven seasons like you know, winter, summer, spring, fall. We don't know. But it was a long enough time for the Lord to get his attention. His hair grew real long. His fingernails grew like talons on an eagle. And then one day it came to his senses. He looked up and he says he blessed the God of heaven. And all of chapter four of Daniel is the most powerful man in the world giving his personal testimony. And he begins by saying, I'm writing to the entire world. And I'm gonna sum it up by reading the last verse of chapter four, where it says, now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and honor the king of heaven and all of those works are, are truth and his ways are justice. And those who walk in pride, he is able to abase or humble. That's what Nebuchadnezzar found out. Now what Daniel is saying to Belshazzar is you should have learned your lesson from your grandpa. But instead of learning your lesson, you've done just the opposite. So the first four verses of Daniel 5 is gonna be the night that Babylon falls. Jeremiah said it's gonna fall and it's gonna be judged. Well, here's the chapter where it happens. Belshazzar the king made a great feast. He invited a thousand of his lords And they drank wine in the presence of the thousands. And then he sent somebody to get the treasure cups that were taken from Solomon's temple, and they brought those out, and they used that for their wine glasses. So we read in verse 4 that they drank wine and praised the gods of silver and of gold and of bronze and of iron and wood and stone. And the last thing that we read in chapter 4 is his grandfather saying, those who walk in pride... The Lord is able to deal with them, and he's able to literally cut them down to size. So in verse 22, Daniel's calling them out. 
He says, Belshazzar, you didn't humble your heart. Instead, you actually mocked the God of heaven by drinking out of the, the temple instruments that were sacred to be used only in the temple. And then what happened is in the middle of their party, a hand comes out of nowhere. And the hand began to write on the plaster of the wall. And he calls all of his wise men in, all of his astrologers. And he says, who can ever interpret this writing, I'll make him the third ruler in my kingdom. Well, none of them could do it. So they said, well, Daniel is known for such things. And so they bring Daniel in. Let's pick it up in verse 24. Then the finger of the hand was sent from him, and this writing was written, and this is the interpretation that was written by the hand on the wall. Many, many, tekel, yufarsin. And then Daniel says, this is the interpretation of each word. Many, God has numbered your kingdom. He's finished it. In other words, your number's up. Uh, Tekel, you have been weighed in the balance and found wanting. And Perez, uh, your kingdom will be divided between the Medes and the Persians who just happened to be laying siege to the city at, as this was happening. They were outside the city walls. And then Belshazzar gave the command and they clothed Daniel with purple and put a chain of gold around him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. And that very night, Belshazzar, the king of the Chaldeans or Babylonians, was killed. And Darius Sabid received the kingdom about 62 years old. Jeremiah said in chapter 50 and 51, Babylon's going to be destroyed. It will never be inhabited ever again. And so I'm going to show you on screen something I showed last week, what Babylon today looks like. This is a modern day picture of Babylon. Those are the ruins of it. Of course, uh, Saddam Hussein, uh, right before the Gulf War, spent millions of dollars actually trying to rebuild the city of Babylon. And um, he didn't get too far. Gulf War broke out. And they eventually, if you remember, when they hung Saddam Hussein. And that building project came to an abrupt end. Why? Because Jeremiah said, nobody is ever going to live in Babylon ever again. No, not one. And so what we have is that literally being fulfilled. So Babylon present, that's what it looks like. If you would go to Babylon today, it's about 20 miles south of Baghdad. And most of ancient Babylon's is under the water of the Euphrates River that went right through the middle of ancient Babylon. All right. Um, Babylon future Last week, part one, I want to go over quickly because we talked about a one-world religion that the Bible predicts is going to be here after the rapture of the church. When true believers are taken out at the rapture, there will be a vacuum. Um, Some churches are going to go on like nothing ever happened. Uh, There will still be people who will call themselves Christians. uh, and Basically, they weren't born again. They were left behind. Uh, And they will come together collectively and they will form a one world religion that we discovered last week was in the city of Rome. If you read the last verse. I'm going to quote J. Vernon McGee here. 
where he says in chapters 17 and 18 of Revelation, we see the judgment of two Babylons. We will first see the apostate church in the great tribulation in chapter 17, and then we'll uh, see not only religious Babylon, but also commercial Babylon in chapter 18. That's why I wanted to do this in two different studies. Here in chapter 17 is Mystery Babylon, the cosmic church, the apostate church. It's a pseudo-religious system which controls the beast, and when I say the beast, I mean the Antichrist, and um, during the first half of the Great Tribulation. So there will be this religious structure headquartered in Rome, and um, it'll be destroyed uh, by the Antichrist in the middle. It'll be halted by the Antichrist during the last half of the, of the first part of the tribulation. The beast, or the Antichrist, destroys the harlot in order to set up his own worship. Now, what I just said is gonna become important as I talk about the debate that people have of what city is being referred to in chapter 18. And one of the clues that helps us understand that it's probably not Rome is what I just read, that the Antichrist is the one who takes it upon himself to destroy this religious system simply because he doesn't want anybody else being worshiped except him. Now, I'm gonna quote um, J. Dwight Pentecost. Is that a great name or what? What a great name. In his book, it's called Things to Come, on page 368, he gives this comment concerning this religious system. He said, the beast who was dominated by the harlot system, in Revelation 17, 3, raises against her and destroys her and her sister com- system completely. Without doubt, the harlot system was in competition with the religious worship of the beast. Promoted by the false prophet and her destruction is brought about so that the beast may be the sole object of false worship as he claims to be God. And of course, this is Second Thessalonians chapter two, where Paul, writing to these baby Christians, he's not even been there a month, and he said, um, basically, don't you remember that when I was with you that before the day of the Lord could come, there has to be the apostasy or the falling away. And then the man of sin, the Antichrist, is gonna be revealed. You'll know him because he's gonna go into the temple that the Jews will be allowed to be rebuilt. And there he will be commanded to be worshiped as God. And if you don't, you have the death penalty. So um, that's what Pentecost here is referring to. He goes on to say that Babylon is to be rebuilt not on the ruins of the old place because Jeremiah said nobody's ever gonna live there again. So it has to be a city that's gonna be rebuilt uh, specifically for the purpose of the use of the Antichrist. Babylon is to be rebuilt as we've seen in Isaiah and Jeremiah and here in chapter 17 and 18 we'll see it destroyed. So religious Babylon will be destroyed by the beast but um, commercial Babylon will be 
destroyed um, with the return of Jesus Christ. Um, The religious Babylon is hated by the beast, but the commercial Babylon is loved by the world. The religious Babylon is destroyed at the beginning of the last three and a half years of the Great Tribulation. Commercial Babylon is destroyed at the end of the last three and a half years of the Great Tribulation. This is at the very end. And then he throws in Zechariah. So Dwight Pentecost sort of lays out a chronology of events, and then he throws this hint when he says, also you want to connect Jeremiah 5, verses 5 through 11, which we will do in just a little bit. Um, the religious system that John saw, he sees this woman sitting on a beast. She has a cup in her hand, and it's filled with abominations and what's called spiritual fornication. All right, let me just get a little bit sidetracked here and tell you a little bit about the church of Thyatira in Revelation chapter 2. He says to this church, I have this against you because you're allowing that woman Jezebel to teach things like spiritual fornication to my people. I gave you time to repent, and if you don't repent, I'm going to cast you into a bed of tribulation. And I I believe that's a reference to the great tribulation, unless they repent of what? Well, Jezebel evidently introduced something that wasn't biblical. And if you go back to when she actually was married to Ahab, what did she do? Well, she was the one who introduced Baal worship to Israel. And in so doing, it corrupted um, the law, the teachings, the commandments, or in other words, the Old Testament and the five books of Moses. And now Baal worship has infiltrated Israel and Jesus in the church of Thyatira calls it spiritual fornication. In other words, doctrine that has the ability, what does the Bible say, a little leaven, leavens a whole lump. So what is a little leaven and how does this religious structure headquartered in Rome, what would some of that spiritual fornication be? Well, I gave the list last week. I'll go over it quickly again right now. First of all, the papacy. What Jesus referred to as the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. Well, what's that? Well, it's made up of two Latin words, nico, meaning lording over, and you already know what laity is, right? We're lay people. So lording it over people would be a literal translation of the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which Jesus said, I hate. We were talking about it yesterday in in, uh, men's Bible study because Jesus, we were in Mark and we were reading where the Lord pulled the 12 aside and he said, guys, come here. He said, we're going to Jerusalem. And when I get there, they're gonna betray me. They're gonna beat me. They're gonna scourge me. Then they're gonna kill me. And then I'm gonna rise again. And then, and then in the very next verse, then James and John said, Lord, when we get to Jerusalem, can I sit on your right hand and James on your left hand? <laughs> they didn't hear a word he said. They were arguing about position. And one of the things that we read, because the other disciples heard it, it says the other 10 were ticked off because of James and John, wanting to seek a place of prominence. 
And the Lord pulled him aside. He says, you guys need to hear this. He said, I'm the son of man, but I didn't come for you guys to serve me. I came to serve you. So I hate the idea and the teaching and the, the natural human instinct of wanting to be recognized, wanting to be, have a position of importance. He says, that is not me. Matter of fact, I hate it. So what is a papacy? It's a structure, beginning with the pope, going to the cardinals, going to the bishops, going to the priests, going to the lay priests. It is a hierarchy that the Lord says, I don't want any part of because it's not my spirit, nor does, is it of me. Then there's a worship of Mary. There's immaculate conception of Mary. There's a perpetual virginity of Mary. Even though Jesus clearly says in the Bible that he had brothers and sisters, and his brother James was actually the first leader in the church in Jerusalem. Uh, Mary as co-redeemer, praying to Mary, petitioning of prayers to the saints, the apostolic succession, the sacraments, infant baptism, confession to a priest, purgatory, indulgences, equal authority of the church with the scriptures, religious artifacts to be worshiped, um, the mass. I saw Mary in a bathtub coming to church this morning in somebody's backyard. I wonder what that's all about. I just never got that one. Last rites, uh, the church was started in Rome. Hmm. I was sure it started in Acts chapter two. And Peter as the first pope. What is this list? It is a list of spiritual fornication. It is false doctrine that is not found in the Bible. And it has, according to Revelation 17, this is what John saw. And um, this woman that had this cup full of these things. Last week we showed the pope um, and different religions, including Islam, um, Judaism, all the religions of the world, and then him declaring that the God of Islam is the same God as the Bible. Well, that's heresy, but that's coming right down from the Pope. And he says, everybody eventually is gonna get saved. Well, that's not what my Bible says. Jesus says, unless you repent, what's the rest of the verse? You will perish. And so we have the making of this, and if I would liken what's happened to Rome to in Jesus' time with the scribes and the Pharisees, they had their traditions too. And Jesus was just upset with Judah, uh, Judaism's traditions as he was, would have been with the doctrines of Roman Catholicism. I'm quoting Mark 7 right now. The Pharisees and the scribes saying, why don't your disciples walk according to the traditions of the elders? Because they eat bread and they don't wash their hands. For laying aside the commandments of God, you hold the tradition of men, the washing of hands and pitchers and cups, and many other things you do. It was a ritual. And you wash your hands, you couldn't touch a towel, you had to let them dry like this, and then you ate. And the Pharisees were getting all bent out of shape because the disciples just sat down and just started taking their tacos and dipping it in a salsa. They weren't washing their hands at all. And it really upset the Pharisees. But then Jesus said this to their traditions. He says, by doing this, you're making the word of God 
of no effect with your traditions, which you have handed down, and many such things you do. You see, as soon as you add to the word of God here, and it actually speaks against what this book says, then you're making this book of no effect. Good place for an amen. This book becomes nothing. It's trumped by the traditions of men. Not only in Roman Catholicism, but also in Judaism. It says, you guys, by being legalistic with this hand-washing thing, and that's just one of the things, he says, you're making this book of no effect. They got at him for the Sabbath. He just says, you guys got it all wrong. He says, I created a Sabbath for, for man, not man for the Sabbath. Give him a day of rest. And they turned it into a great big religious obligation. Now, lest you think that um, I'm just looking at one religious structure, Roman Catholicism, I'm not. This is across the board in Christianity today. Even in the Calvary Chapel movement, and it breaks my heart to see it happening, but it's happening. If you want more information on that, Roger Oakland, um, from his ministry, Understanding the Times, this was the title of last week's um, main article. The hijacking of the Calvary Chapel movement into the coming one world religion. So I'm including the Calvary Chapels um, instead of warning, which, was the, which is what this Bible studies about this morning. Instead of warning, they're joining. And they're actually laying down Calvary Chapel distinctives for the sake of becoming more unified with, with people that are reformed in their theology or Calvinistic in their thinking and um, willing to do so for the sake of unity. Um, what I have not addressed from the pulpit that I'm going to do this morning um, is we, have, we are no longer supporting Gospel for Asia um, because of what I'm going to show you in a minute. They've uh, unfortunately have gotten completely off track. It breaks my heart because I was the first Calvary Chapel pastor that KPO had and ever met. And um, I introduced him to Pastor Chuck. And as a result, when he began, very humbly, he modeled all the churches, the Bible colleges that were being built after the structure of the Calvary Chapel movement. And believe me, I know because I've been in every state in India helping him do it. And it breaks my heart to see what started so well in humility and the teaching of the word chapter by chapter, verse by verse, that's what he was going to do, where it's come into a place where KP now looks at himself as the Pope. I'm choosing that word carefully of the Christians in India. And if I just left it at that, and just said it, it probably would not leave the impact. So I've decided to show a film that's very easily accessible on the internet. And here's just three men being ordained in India. KP is on a little throne with his long robe. He's wearing a ring. They will bow to him. They will kiss his ring. And he'll lay hands on them. And as the archbishop of this priesthood what it's turned into is the laying on of hands. Notice the um, 
the staff, the Catholic staff, and the Catholic robes that are being worn by all of them. And um, I know KP very well, and it breaks my heart to show this, it breaks my heart to see this, and yet um, the, the institute that monitors Christian organizations to make sure that they're on the up and up have completely broken all ties with Gospel for Asia. Uh, 100% of the funds that you have given to Gospel for Asia are supposed to stay in India. We've had four families from Calvary Chapel who gave 25 years of their life uh, raising their own support. And I wouldn't be saying these things unless I talked to them personally. And they said, Dwight, it's worse than what we can even tell you. It's worse than what's on the internet today. And, um, and yet, this is what can happen to a Nebuchadnezzar. It can happen to anyone who allows pride, money, and power to become a part of a structure. And believe me, KP has all three. And um, they got caught smuggling back into the United States $22 million to build a compound. And I'm not exaggerating when I'm saying it's not much different except for the Kool-Aid than Jamestown. And so it breaks my heart to have to say that, but what I told you, you could do your own research. But I've never addressed it from the pulpit before, but it blends into our Bible study this morning because the road to Rome is moving towards Revelation 17. Not just within the Catholic Church saying that we accept everybody and anybody, but in the Calvary Chapel movement. And now the second largest missionary organization in the world has succumbed to this. I get choked up thinking about it. Um, yesterday in men's prayer, we read this verse, Mark 12, verse uh, 38. Then he said to them in his teaching, beware of the scribes who desire to go around in long robes and lo- loving the greetings in the marketplace. What would you think if I came out with a nice long white robe on? Or not even that bad, how about just a little white collar here? Would I distinguish myself from you? Would you know that I'm different from you because I got this little white thing right here? And um, I'll wear one next week. We'll see how it goes over. Somebody said they were inviting somebody to come to church. And they go, no, no, I don't like like getting dressed up. And the guy that was inviting the church just broke out laughing. He says, get dressed up at Calvary Chapel, are you kidding? And I said, what do you mean? I said, I wear a tie. Look around, I'm the only one wearing a tie. (laughs) Nobody else does. The first service this morning, Scott Johnson gave an announcement. It's one of our board members. He was up here in shorts. I'm gonna have to pull him aside and give him a good talking to. Now, we're, we're what's called a low church. What's the difference between a low church and a high church? Not that one is prouder or more arrogant than the other. It's just that we're more casual in the way we do things. And we, we really do believe in the simplicity of just teaching God's word simply without any of the outer trappings. But as soon as I put on something that makes me look different from you, it's sending a message. It's certainly sending a message in Roman Catholicism. So we don't do that. So that's sort of an, an overview of um, part one, and now this week, uh, I asked a question before I get on to 18. 
We ended the study last week with a simple question. Do we see the church as a whole um, moving towards a one world religion? And the answer to that question was, we definitely do, even in our own movement. All right, now let's tackle chapter 18. If that was religious Babylon, then chapter 18 is an economic Babylon. And the question arises, we know that it's a city, but what city is it? Uh, The two arguments that are out there is some people that I I respect very, very highly believe that it is Rome. And you can turn to Revelation 18 at this time. We know that it's a city. The argument for it being Rome would be in verse 3 where it says, it's almost word for word from chapter 17, for the nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication, and the kings of the earth have committed fornication with her. And the merchants of the earth have become rich through the abundance of her luxury. That's where it changes just a little bit. Now, in verse 24, in her was fallen the blood of the prophets and the saints and all who were slain on the earth. This is what shocked John so much because um, in this particular religious system, it was known for martyring Christians. And when the Reformation hit, there was a group of people called the Anabaptists who did not believe in infant baptism, that salvation was apart from any works, that it was God's grace, and it was a free gift. And if you believe that, you were martyred. Um, John Wycliffe, um, and it goes on and on, the great, some of the great men of God of our time were, were put to the stake for simply believing the word of God. So I'm not going to be dogmatic this morning because I don't think we can be. I think a lot's going to be revealed after the rapture of the church. Once the Antichrist comes into power, he has this power struggle with this religious institution that's got to go because he's the only one that's going to be worshipped. So as we pick this up, I'm going to lay the case this morning for a city that's already there. And that city, uh, there's presently on... No city on the earth that could compel all the kings and merchants of the earth to do business with it and at the same time corrupt its comers with wickedness and whose kings and merchants will weep and mourn at her destruction. I strongly suggest that there's one under under construction across the gulf in the land of Shinar, which is by far and away will become at least physically the finest city on the earth, bar none, and the one who I strongly suggest that Satan is constructing for his man, the Antichrist, the city is Dubai, and it's the capital of the United Arab Emirate. And before I go any farther, we need to actually read Revelation 18. So please follow along in your Bibles. This is a city. Now after this I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was illuminated with his glory. And he cried mightily with a loud voice saying, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen. It has become a habitation of demons, a prison for every foul spirit, and a cage for every unclean and hated bird. For all nations have drunk of the wine of her fornication, 
The kings of the earth have committed fornication with her. The merchants of the earth have become rich through the abundance of her luxury. And I heard another voice from heaven saying, come out of her, my people, lest you share in her sins and lest you receive of her plagues. For her sins have reached to heaven and God has remembered her iniquities. Render to her just as she rendered to you and repay her double according to her works. In the cup which she has mixed, mixed for her double. In the measure she has glorified herself and lived luxuriously, well in the same manner, give her torment and sorrow. For she says in her heart, I sit as a queen, I'm no widow and will see no sorrow. Therefore her plague will come in one day, death and mourning and famine, She will be utterly burned with fire, for strong is the Lord God who judges her. Let me just stop here. It's the Antichrist that destroys the religious system in Rome. Here, we see the Lord himself bringing judgment on this particular city. It says in verse 9, the kings of the earth who committed fornication and lived luxuriously with her will weep and lament, where we get the book Lamentations, for her. When they see the smoke of her burning, They'll stand at a distance for fear. Well, why would they be fearful if they're far enough away? Radioactivity is one possibility. And for fear, for in one hour your judgment has come. The merchants of the earth will weep and mourn for her, for no one buys their merchandise anymore. Merchandise of gold and silver, precious stones, pearls, fine linen, purple, silk, scarlet, every kind of citron wood, every kind of object of ivory, every kind of object of most precious wood and bronze and iron and marble, cinnamon and incense and, and a fragrant oil and frankincense, wine and oil, fine flour, wheat cattle, sheep, horse, chariots, bodies. Remember this one, the souls of men. And the fruit that your soul longs for has gone from you And all the things which are rich and splendid, they're all gone from you, and you will find them no more at all. And the merchants of these things, who for fear of her torment, weeping and wailing, saying, alas, alas, that great city that was clothed in fine linen and purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, for in one hour such great riches came to nothing. And every shipmaker and all who travel by sea, sailors, as many as trade on the sea, stood at a distance. And they cried out when they saw the smoke of her burning, saying, What is like this great city? And they threw dust on their heads and cried out, weeping and wailing, and saying, Alas, alas, for the great city which all who had ships of the sea became rich by her wealth, in other words, trading, For in one hour she is made desolate. Rejoice over her, O heavens, and you holy apostles and prophets, for God has avenged you of her. And then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone, threw it into the sea, saying, Thus with violence the great city Babylon will be thrown down and shall not be found anymore. And the sound of the harpists, the musicians, and the flutists, and the trumpeters shall not be heard in you anymore. No craftsman or craft shall be found in you anymore. The sound of the millstone shall not be heard in you anymore. And the light of a lamp shall not shine in you anymore. 
and the voice of the bridegroom and bride shall not be heard in you anymore. For your merchants were the great men of the earth, and by your sorcery all the nations were deceived. And in her was fallen the blood of the prophets and saints and all who were slain that were upon the earth. The case for Dubai would have to be tied into at this point where I have you turn to where Dwight Pentecost made mention of Zechariah chapter five, remember? I'm gonna have you turn to Zechariah chapter five. Something I never saw before in the book of Zechariah, the Lord actually showed me at five o'clock in the morning to the point where I had to get up and take notes because of what he was showing me. Because I was thinking about Zechariah five and this prophecy of the woman in the basket. And I'll explain the notes that I took in a different way that I now look at the book of Zechariah. But let's pick it up in verse five. It's a prophecy. It says, then an angel who talked with me came out and said to me, I want you to lift up your eyes now and see what it is that goes forth. So I asked, what is it? And he said, well, it's a basket that's going forth. He also said, this is the resemblance throughout the, the whole earth. Now here is a lead disc lifted up, and there's a woman sitting inside the basket. Then he said, this is wickedness. And he thrust her down to the basket and then put the lead cover on its mouth. And I raised my eyes and looked, and there were two women uh, coming with wind in their wings. For they had wings like the wings of a stork, and they lifted up the basket between the earth and heaven. And so I said to the angel who talked with me, where are they carrying the basket? And he said to me, to build a house for it in the land of Shinar, when it is ready, the basket will be set there on its space. In other words, somewhere in the land of Shinar, there's something being built, a house, I believe a city, and when the city is finished, then wickedness uh, will be set there and will be placed on its space. Now, this is what I never saw before. I was reading chapter four, but I go, well, that's right next to five, but that's right next to chapter four, which is, the whole chapter is about the two witnesses in Revelation 11, and says so. Look at the last two verses of chapter four. It's about the two olive trees. And the last 13 and 14, um, he answered and said, do you know who these two guys are? And I said, no, my Lord, who are they? And he said, well, these are the two anointed ones who stand before the Lord of the whole earth. Now, if you want to check it out later, just go to Revelation chapter 11 and read, and it says, these are the two witnesses that stand before the Lord of the whole earth. And then it quotes Zechariah chapter four. What's your point? My point is that chapter four is an event that takes place right in the middle of the tribulation period. Chapter five, I believe, also takes place in the tribulation period. If you turn to page to chapter nine, 
This is where we were yesterday in men's prayer. Zechariah 9.9, that's a prophecy about the day Jesus would ride the colt down the Mount of Olives. Verse nine says, rejoice greatly, O daughters of Zion. Shout, O daughters of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He's just, he has salvation. Lowly, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. So now we got a prophecy the very day that Jesus would allow himself to be worshiped. But if you go to verse 10, and this is something you wanna be sensitive to as we teach through God's word, that in one verse, you can be a thousand years apart, and such is the case here. Um, Jesus has been, this was at least over 2,000 years old, verse nine. Verse 10 is still yet future, for it says that this same person will speak peace to the nations and his kingdom, dominion, shall be from sea to sea and from the rivers to the ends of the earth. Clearly when Jesus is reigning during the millennial reign. Turn to page to chapter 12, verse two. Here is a scripture, behold, I will make Jerusalem a cup of drunkenness to all the surrounding people when they lay siege against Judah and Jerusalem. I believe it's a picture of Ezekiel 38. Hasn't happened yet. But my point again is Zechariah is touching upon all these last day predictions. And then, turn to chapter 14, we have um, the battle of Armageddon, verse one and two. Verse three, we have the second coming of Jesus. Verse four says he'll put his feet on the Mount of Olives, and we know that's gonna happen, so that's gonna happen at the very end of the tribulation, but then if you go to verse 16 of chapter 14, it is clearly a verse that can only be fulfilled in the kingdom age. It says in verse 16, if you're living and make it into the kingdom age, it'll come to pass that everyone who is left of the nations, that's because a lot of people are killed during the great tribulation, which came up against Jerusalem, shall go up from year to year to worship the king the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. What's your point, Dwight? When we read about this basket of wickedness and say that it's gonna be some future city, I believe it carries weight because the rest of the book of Zechariah talks about um, the two witnesses in the middle, Jesus' first coming with the donkey, uh, his second coming, all these scriptures that tie into yet future events. All right, I believe Zechariah 5 is a reference to a particular city that has been and is being rebuilt just over the last 50 years. And I believe that city is Dubai. It started out, I was told in the back room, I didn't know it, Tim Danielson told me this, that it was, uh, it was built by the Dubai brothers, the Dubai brothers, the Dubai Dubai brothers. The... And I said, no, it's not. I said, why do you tell me stuff like that? Because you, know you know it's gonna slip out in a study. So I'm gonna rebuke him thoroughly when I'm done with this message this morning. Let me tell you a little bit about Dubai. 50 years ago, it was a fishing town. The city has emerged from a poor fishing village, get this, to the fastest growing city in the world. Before I came out, 
I talked to Siri. Siri, what's the population of Dubai? She told me, 2,503,000 from nothing in the last 50 years. It's the fastest growing city in the world. And um, its growth rate is 23% growth in Dubai over the past four years. Now, if it is Dubai, then it has to meet certain, let's go back to um, uh, Revelation 18 at this time. It has to meet certain criteria. First of all, it has to definitely be a port city because um, one of its means of becoming wealthy is trade, and when it's destroyed, all the shipmakers are the ones weeping because it is destroyed. So, is Dubai a port city? Let me show you the port of Dubai. It's one of the busiest in the world. The city here is known for its opulence and its luxury. The question is, Dubai, an opulent city, and is it known for its luxury? What you're looking at here in number three is one of 10 seven-star hotels in the world. There's only 10 of them. And the most opulent of them all, you're looking at it right now. That's a seven-star hotel, and there's only 10 of them in the world. To rent the, the suite on the top floor will cost you 13 grand per night. So that, that would qualify, I'm sure, as being opulent. Um, it was also would have to be known for trading and buying and selling with all these things that we mentioned in chapters 12 from gold and silver and pearls. By the way, before Dubai was on the map for anything, they were known for its pearls. That was one of the things that they did do. Um, Dubai, talk about Mall of America being something. Check this one out. That is the largest mall in the entire world. And uh, there's none bigger. The biggest one is in Dubai. Um, the next uh, area that would have to be with the luxury of the city, and what got me first thinking about it in the first place is what we're gonna put up next. You're looking at the tallest building in the world. Now before, I even thought about seriously considering Dubai. I was coming back from India, and there were posters everywhere about the wealth and the building of the the tallest building in the world. And I immediately flashed on Nimrod, and I immediately flashed on the first Babylon. What was the first Babylon known for? Building a building that would reach to heaven. And so I'm thinking, if I'm the Antichrist, then I want the biggest building in the world. Where is the biggest and tallest building in the world? Dubai. I think they just built one somewhere else that's about 10 feet taller, just so they can say, now we're the biggest one. But there it is, unbelievable structure. Then we have the third busiest airport in the world. Uh, it was especially created for the super large jumbo jets to bring in the amount of tourism that it's based upon. The shopping mall in it, they also have what um, something there that's six times bigger than Disney 
land. It's the Fountain City of Wonders. I'll put that one up next. And this here, they have models of, uh, we see here the Eiffel Tower, uh, the pyramids, hanging gardens of, of, of um, Babylon. And the wealthiest horse race that takes place in the world is not the Kentucky Derby. It's held in Dubai. The first place prize is $6 million. And I can go, probably their greatest accomplishment, I was watching one time, um, Modern Marvels, remember that program? Uh, this is what they built to create more um, beach, beach space. That is built offshore of the coast of Dubai. It's a city within itself. It's called Palm City. Uh, they pumped sand uh, from the bottom until it was compacted. And each one of those palm branches are very elaborate condos that are extremely expensive. And um, just going out there is... Um, uh, it's just it's just an amazement. They have another one that I don't have a slide of where they have every continent of the world and um, made into an island. And you can do the research, but the question in order for Dubai to qualify as this place, is it in the land of Shinar? Is this city being prepared for the Antichrist? I've believed it since I first heard about wanting to have the tallest building in the world. It's been built in the last 50 years. And um, remember I said, and one of the things that it had was the souls of men. If you look at chapter 18, verse 13, the souls of men. I got sidetracked a whole hour yesterday reading an article on the dark side of Dubai. Yes, it's grown incredibly. Yes, it's incredibly luxurious and opulent. But at the cost of 300,000 basically slaves, souls of men. How do they get them? Well, these poor Indians that come over sell everything they get there. As soon as they get there, they take their passport. And they ask for the passport back, and they won't give it to them. Um, they have to, they say, well, if you don't like it, you can leave. Oh, we don't have any money and we don't have a passport. Well, I guess you have to work then. One hour um, north or uh, one hour um, south of Dubai is a city that houses these 300,000 workers. They have bunk beds three feet high and they're shuffled in and out every day to do the construction in Dubai. And... Um, Many of them are trapped. Even Americans and Canadians, if you lose your passport in Dubai, you're, you're going to be in, be in trouble. So the souls of men, um, they tell Americans only to stay out in the sun 10 minutes in Dubai because you'll dehydrate. These men are expected to work 12-hour days, seven days a week. And of course they die. And uh, when you drive around Dubai, they stand out. Every so often you see a guy in a blue suit. And I mean like a prison suit that you would be wearing. So the dark side of Dubai and the souls of men are very much involved with it becoming so rich. It is ruled by one sheik who inherited it from his father and brother. His picture is on every building that's there. And uh, what, his, what he says is law. 
Do I believe it's setting the stage for chapter 18? In my personal opinion, that's what I believe. If you want to believe it's Rome, I certainly don't think it should be anything we would argue about if you feel it's Rome. I just think it's very compelling that we have the city with able to fulfill um, chapter 18. Let's switch gears and close with two thoughts. I need you to turn to Luke chapter 19. What we're talking about this morning is obviously Bible prophecy. We read all five chapters of Lamentation last Wednesday night. I gravitated towards the scripture that Jeremiah was lamenting, no more delicacies, they're gone forever. And I thought it would be a good text to finish part two with the judgment of the city of Babylon that is yet to be built. Just as Jeremiah predicted accurately the fall of Jerusalem, in Luke chapter 19, we have Jesus doing exactly the same thing. Now let me set this up a little bit because the first part, when you go back to verse 28, is actually something we were just talking about in Zechariah chapter nine. Zechariah chapter nine says that Israel, your king is coming to you lowly, humble. He's on a colt that's never been ridden before. So if you look at verse 28, what we have is Jesus telling his two disciples, yeah, he says, I want you to go to this town here and you're gonna see a donkey. Nobody's ever ridden this donkey before. I want you to bring him to me. Oh, and by the way, if the owner says, what do you guys think you're doing? Just tell the guy the Lord has need of him. Okay, so they go to this village. Sure enough, there's the donkey. Sure enough, they take him, and sure enough, the owner says, hey, what do you guys think you're doing? And they just said, the Lord, the Lord needs him. Oh, one of the guys that met prayer, because we read this yesterday in men's prayers, said, don't you think it would have been cool hanging out with Jesus? And exactly what was about to happen, he tells you before it happens, and then it happens, and you gotta look at each other and go, <laughs> hanging out with the Lord. Oh, by the way, the owner's gonna come, and he's gonna say, what are you guys up to? Just say the Lord has need of him. And somehow the Lord communicated to the owner, hey, look, a couple guys are gonna be coming guy today. Don't bother him. If they take the colt, let him have it. So I imagine the owner was blown away too and probably thought, this is interesting. So you know the story. He's riding down the Mount of Olives and what happens? Well, the crowd begins to quote Psalm 118. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And the Pharisees get all upset. And they said, they think you're the Messiah. This is a messianic psalm. It can only be said of the Messiah when he comes. Teacher, rebuke them. They think you're the Messiah. And Jesus said, sorry, I can't do that. Why? Because if they would keep silent, then the rocks would praise me. Because Psalm 118 says, when I show up, I'm gonna allow the people to worship me on one day. And that one day was this day. It was the day that Daniel predicted to the day, April 6, 32 AD. That's the importance of Bible prophecy. But here's what happens if you don't know Bible prophecy when you should. Because this moment of glory and worship 
when you read verse 41, it's turned completely upside down. As he drew near the city, he began to weep. This is one of two places for Jesus Christ. Why is he weeping? He says, well, if only you had known, even especially in this your day. If you read all of Psalm 118, it says, this is the day that the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. This is the day. He said, oh, if you only would have known. This is the day that the psalmist was writing about. The things that make for your peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes. And just as Jeremiah said, Jerusalem is coming down. Now Jesus says, Jerusalem is coming down. Verse 43, for the day will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you and close you in on every side, level you and your children within you to the ground, and will not leave one stone upon another. Before I read the rest, did that happen? Yeah, it's a fact of history. He said it in 32 AD, 38 years later in 70 AD, the 10th Roman Legion destroyed on the very same day, the 9th of Av, that Solomon's temple was destroyed, Herod's temple was destroyed. Just as Jeremiah predicted it would happen, it happened. Just as Jesus predicted it would happen, it would happen. Then what does he say? Because, why is it gonna happen? Because you did not know the time of your visitation. In other words, because you did not know Bible prophecy. I wanna put a picture on the screen of America's pastor. I put it up last week. Shaking hands with the Pope. Rick Warren. I'm quoting from page 285 of his book, The Purpose Driven Life. He says, when the disciples wanted to talk about prophecy, Jesus quickly switched the conversation to evangelism. He wanted them to concentrate on the mission in the world. He said, in essence, the details of my return are none of your business. Oh, really? What is your business is the mission that I have given to you. And yet, Jesus weeps one of two times because they did not know Bible prophecy. Would it made the difference? Evidently. And um, the importance of taking Bible prophecies in the times in which we live and you see a program, you're sitting with an unbelieving friend and all of a sudden there's Dubai. And you can say, You want to hear some interesting things about the city of Dubai and what potentially it could hold? Now, we of all people, how am I doing? I'm past my time. (laughs) Aren't you glad it's a a bye week? (laughs) You're still sitting here. Some of you would Anyway, the importance of of, uh, knowing the word of God and Bible prophecy, you can't get away from it, gang. If you teach the Bible chapter by chapter, verse by verse, you're gonna run into it because there's so much of the Bible that involves prophecy. And here, the Pharisees should have been the one warning and informing. Instead, they were rebuking. And I see in the church today, America's pastor saying that Bible prophecy is is none of our business. And I see my Bible teaching me just the opposite where my Lord says, better make sure you're watching. Better make sure you're uh, aware of, of the seasons, of the times and the seasons, brethren, Paul said. 
I have no need to write unto you. You're supposed to know these things. And again, when he wrote this to the Thessalonians, they were three weeks old in the Lord. So don't go think you have to be 20 years Christian to dive into some meaty stuff in the Bible. Paul didn't think so. He was teaching it to the babes. All right, Matthew 6, and I'll let you go. Seeing much of this here revolves around, and I didn't take you to um, Ezekiel. In Ezekiel 28, it gives the reason that Lucifer fell. And if I was to ask you right now, what was the sin that brought Lucifer down? What would you say? Pride. What if I told you you were wrong? I'm reading from Ezekiel 28 right now. Jesus said, uh, Ezekiel says, you were perfect, referring to Lucifer, in all your ways from the day that you were created. And then it says, until iniquity was found in you. Now, verse 16. By the abundance of your trading, you became filled with violence within and you sinned. And you go, what's that all about? What does that mean? Evidently, in heaven, and it's repeated again in verse 18, you defiled your sanctuaries by the iniquity of your trading. He was busy. He was busy all the time. And he got so busy that iniquity somewhere entered in because his whole world revolved around in the heavenly realm some sort of trading. And that's all the scriptures tell us about it. What is Revelation 18 known for? Buying and selling and trading. That's what it's all about. As we close up this morning, and I wanted to end it on a little lighter note, but also challenge us because we live, we live in a pressure cooker world. Somebody want to say amen? There's always something that needs to be done. And literally, unless I'm out of the city, there's always something that has to be done. And I can be busy 24-7. And you can be too. But what I find interesting, it's the very thing that brought Lucifer down. Oh yeah, pride did too. Isaiah makes it clear that pride was the original sin. But that's not what Ezekiel says. It was the busyness of your trading that filled you with violence and and that is where iniquity entered in. So the Lord has a lot to say about us Christians as far as our priorities and our busyness. So it's an exhortation to me. Hopefully it will be for you as we go out this week. So if you're in Matthew chapter six, I guess we're just calling this keeping the main thing the main thing. And um, pick it up in verse 25. Jesus said, therefore I say, don't worry about your life. What you're gonna eat or what you're gonna drink or about your body, what you're gonna put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, for they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns. Yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more value than they? And which of you by worrying can add even an inch to your statute? It's not gonna change a thing. So why do you worry about your clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I say to you that even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. 
And if God can clothe the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is sown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not worry. Saying, well, what are we going to eat? And what are we going to drink? Or what are we going to wear? For after these things, the Gentiles, or the natural man, that's what they seek after. And that's what Revelation 18 is all about. The buying and the selling and having the luxury. For your heavenly fathers knows the things that you need. And here it is. But you seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these other things will be added to you. Good place for an amen. amen. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. hundred years from now, where are your possessions going to be? Somewhere down here. You ever see the t-shirt, he who dies with the most toys, what's the rest of it? No, still dies. <laughs> and he dies with none of his toys. You leave it all behind. You can send it ahead. Jesus said, wherever you're, well, how does he begin this? Verse 19, don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where it can be stolen or it can rust and fall apart. But lay up for yourself treasures where? In heaven. You see, you can't take them with you. But guess what? You can send them on ahead. Well, how do you do that? By serving the Lord. Give somebody a glass and say, here, I want to give you a glass of water in Jesus' name. And you're being selfish because you know you're going to get a reward for that. And you're going to be rewarded according to how we spent our time, how we spent our money, what we were worried about, what we were concerned about, and uh, keeping up with the Joneses. So as we take this lament from the book of Lamentations, and we see the judgment where it's all headed, it's all going to be destroyed. That seven-star hotel is not going to be here in 100 years. Matter of fact, it might not even be here in 10 years, the way things are, are going. That's... Literally how fast things are going. And I'm going past my time. Let's stand up and let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word this morning. As we make our way through the book of Lamentation, we see that Jeremiah's heart was broken. He didn't like the message that you gave him to give, but he was faithful. And he gave the message. Jesus was broken to tears because people were not aware of Bible prophecy. They didn't know the time of his coming. And he correctly foretold the destruction of Jerusalem. Lord, it's because of things that have come to pass in the past that we can know with certainty that those things yet talked about in Zechariah will come to pass just as your word, which you says cannot be broken, is gonna happen too. So help us, Lord, bottom line, seek first your kingdom and not worry. Increase our faith, Lord, to trust in you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.